We read in 1 Samuel chapters 2 through 4 of Eli's failure to admonish his sons. Eli was the high priest in the tabernacle. And the way that the Lord organized the priesthood, a man who was a priest would then pass the priesthood down to his sons. So we have in 1 Samuel 2, uh, Eli serving in the tabernacle as the high priest, and we have his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, also serving as priests in the tabernacle. Now what we read is that Hophni and Phinehas completely disregarded the laws of the Lord. The Lord had very specific laws for how the sacrifices were to be handled, uh, the offerings were to be handled that were brought to the tabernacle in, in the worship of the Lord. And the, the priests could eat part of the animal sacrifices, of, of certain animal sacrifices and certain parts of those sacrifices at certain times. But what we read is that Hophni and Phinehas uh, showed no regard for the Lord's instructions uh, they wanted more for themselves. And, and so they would send their servants to, when meat was being boiled, uh, to, to, to stab a, a three-pound fork into that meat and take it out early uh, for Hophni and Phinehas, and maybe for their father, Eli, to eat. Uh, they would even demand that people would give them the meat before it was cooked so they could roast it a, a way that they preferred to, to eat it. And so in their greed, in their disregard for the instructions of the Lord, they forced worshipers to give them what they wanted, and they were just gratifying their fleshly desires. Now, Eli was their father. He knew better. He, he knew the law of God, just as Eli and just as Hophni and Phinehas did. But... The Lord spoke to Eli and said, Judgment is coming because you have not restrained your sons. You have honored your sons above the Lord because you have allowed them to do what is displeasing to the Lord. You have not correctly rebuked their sinful behavior. You have not correctly brought their sinful behavior to a stop. You have allowed it. And so the Lord warned of great judgment. The Lord told Eli, because you have not restrained your sons from living in this evil, which we read in the text went even further than that. These sons would actually sleep uh, with female servants who were there at the tabernacle. The Lord said, Because you have not restrained your sons, judgment is coming. I, I will take away the priesthood from your house, and I will give the priesthood to someone else. Your descendants will no longer be priests. In fact, I will put to death your sons. And what we see is the Lord's warning come to pass. Israel was in battle with the Philistines. Israel had not, their army had not been doing so well in battle. And so the Israelites thought, what can we do to make God to give us victory? Ah, we will take the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle. Did the Lord instruct that? No. We'll do this. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And so Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons of Eli, these evil sons, they take the Ark of the Covenant with the army into battle. And that day, Hophni and Phinehas die in battle. The Philistines completely overrun the Israelite army. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. They take it away. So Israel loses the Ark of the Covenant. 
And this news comes back to Eli, and he hears it, and he falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. One of his sons had a wife who was about to give birth. She hears the news. She gives birth, and she dies. But before she dies, the name that she gives to the son who is born is Ichabod, signifying that the glory of the Lord left Israel on that day. It was a dark, dark day for Israel. They lost the Ark of the Covenant. Two priests were killed in battle. The high priest died. And they sensed that the glory of the Lord departed. So many of these consequences could have been avoided if Eli had faithfully admonished his sons. If Eli had not permitted his sons to continue in their evil way. Fatherly admonishment is so very important. Fatherly admonishment is so very important in families. And fatherly admonishment is so very important in the church. We can be like Hophni and Phinehas at, at times to some degree. We can be in sin. King David, a man after God's own heart, needed to be admonished by the prophet Nathan. Because he was unrepentant for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. We can be like this. Fatherly admonishment is so very important in the church. And we will see in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, fatherly admonishment and what is to accompany fatherly admonishment. Now as we come to 1 Corinthians... Uh, do keep in mind that 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. Corinth was the largest and wealthiest city in Greece. Uh, this letter was written around the year AD 55. We, we have a history in the book of Acts of Paul's ministry up until the time that he goes to Rome. And the writing of 1 Corinthians would fit into the book of Acts in Acts chapter 19 when Paul was ministering for a significant period of time in Ephesus. So, being that this letter was written around 55 AD, that means it was written about 25 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus was raised from the dead, He showed Himself alive to His disciples over the course of 40 days. And then in the, the, the sight of His disciples, He ascended into heaven, uh, back to the Father. And he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit, what the Father had promised. And on the day of Pentecost, the Father, through the Son, poured out the Holy Spirit. What you had was a great number of people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration on Pentecost. You had them hear the things of God being miraculously spoken in languages that they knew from the different parts of the world where they had come from. And by the Spirit, they were saved. As they hear, heard the Apostle Peter proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus Christ and Him raised in victory on the third day as Lord and Christ, many were saved as the Holy Spirit was poured out that day. And the gospel spread forth. The gospel of Jesus Christ spread forth from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and then into Gentile areas further and further towards the ends of the earth, including the Apostle Paul taking the gospel to Corinth, this largest, wealthiest city in Greece. We read in the book of Acts about his initial ministry there in Corinth. And three to five years after Paul had first arrived in Corinth, he is now no longer in Corinth, he's in Ephesus, but he's received reports about how the church is doing. 
And so he hears some things that are quite concerning. And so he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to address these concerns. He writes as a father to his children. That's where this letter came from. And Paul writes this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he indicates in the very first verse of this letter. But Christ had chosen apostles uh, who were witnesses of the resurrection, whom Christ sent as His official representatives with His message. And Christ even gave them authority to perform the kinds of miraculous signs that Jesus did to authenticate the message of Christ. Now Paul was different from the other apostles in one respect, in that he had not been with Jesus while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. But the apostle Paul was, before he ever was an apostle, he was on the road to Damascus. He had made himself an enemy of the church of Jesus Christ. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest followers of Jesus. And on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul. And the Lord Jesus Christ opened his spiritual eyes. And the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned the Apostle Paul uh, to proclaim the word of Christ, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And by Christ's commission, the Apostle Paul became the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so, he writes here with apostolic authority. He writes as an official representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, it's important to know that these words are not just the words of the Apostle Paul, but this is part of Scripture. So this letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the very Word of God that God gave to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Because the things that are addressed here are not, were not just important for the church in Corinth at that time. But the things that Paul brings up here are important for us today. For the church today. The church universal. Until Jesus comes again. These are important for us as well. Because though our circumstances may look somewhat different from that of the Corinthian church, our hearts don't look all that different. On the inside, we're very similar. And so the same things that they were struggling with, the same things that they needed to address, are the sorts of things that we struggle with. And we need to address as well. I'm going to read to us our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. If you're able, please stand in, the, in honor of the Word of God. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? This is God's holy word. Please be seated. In much of this epistle, Paul is correcting sin. That's really something that stands out when you read the book as a whole, how much sin Paul is addressing. In many ways, this this church really was a gifted church. The Holy Spirit had gifted them in, in various ways. And yet, they were the most worldly of the churches to which Paul writes. And he has to correct much sin in the church. Now, what is sin? We have a very concise 
definition of sin in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4b. 1 John 3, 4b says, Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It means that sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, how was the Corinthian church in sin? Well, we have already seen that the Corinthian church was forming divisions. That's in chapter 1, verse 10. They were quarreling, chapter 1, verse 11. They were engaging in party spirit, chapter 1, verse 12. They were jealous, chapter 3, verse 3. They were behaving in a fleshly way. Uh, that's also chapter 3, verse 3. They were enamored with worldly wisdom, chapter 3, verse 18. They were boasting in men, chapter 3, verse 21. They were puffed up in favor of one against another, chapter 4, verse 6. And they were judging the Apostle Paul. That's chapter 4, verse 5. I want us to go forward to chapter 9. I want you to see how Paul was being attacked. Chapter 9, verse 1. Verse 1, Paul asks these rhetorical questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. There were those who were claiming that the apostle Paul was not an apostle. They were seeking to undermine his ministry. And you come back to chapter 4, the church has been influenced by these attacks upon the Apostle Paul. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul spoke about not judging the, 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 the minister. He probably had in mind how the Corinthian church, or a faction within the church, was judging him. Now, all of these signs were tied, sins were tied together. Forming divisions, quarreling, engaging in party spirit, jealousy, fleshly living, enamored with worldly wisdom, boasting in men, puffed up in favor of one against another, judging the Apostle Paul. All these sins were tied together. Now, what does the Apostle Paul do about the sin in the Corinthian church? He cannot just continue on his way. He cannot just hope that things will get better without his involvement. We see in our text what he did about it. And as we study what the Apostle did about sin in the church, we will see what we as believers need when we are in sin. Specifically, we will see in this passage three things that we need when we are in sin so that we will correct our ways to the glory of God. First of all, when we are in sin, we need a fatherly admonishment. A fatherly admonishment to take to heart. In the last passage that we studied, Paul used strong language as he contrasted the Corinthians and their worldly pride on one hand with himself and his humble service of Christ on the other hand. Now look at what he says of this in verse 14 of our text. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. When Jesus was crucified, His enemies were seeking to shame Him. But that is not what Paul has been seeking to do to the Corinthians. He has not been seeking to shame them. Rather, he says, he's been seeking to admonish them. The word that's translated admonish here means to give verbal correction. It means to correct another person for something improper in their life whether an improper belief or an improper attitude that they show or an improper behavior, etc. Paul says that he is writing to the Corinthians to admonish you as my beloved children. Why does Paul call them his beloved children? Well, look at verse 15. In verse 15 he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ... 
You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, he says that they had countless guides. Uh, the, the word that this is translated from, this word guides, is the same word that we find in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that is translated as guardian there. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And in that passage in Galatians, that, that word which is translated by the ESV as guardian, the law was our guardian until Christ came, has been translated by the New American Standard as tutor. The law was our tutor until Christ came. It has been translated by the King James as, school, as schoolmaster. The law was our schoolmaster until Christ came. Now this Greek word is the same word that, is used, that Paul uses here in verse 15, it's translated guides, though you have countless guides in Christ. The Greek word comes from a position in Greco-Roman upper class households. When the, the master of a household, when, when his son was about ages 7 through 17, the son was cared for and supervised by a male slave who had this title, guardian. Or as translated in our text, guide. The boy's guardian tutored him in proper conduct, disciplined him, and guarded him from danger and bad influences. In our text, the significant thing about a guardian or a guide is this. Though the guardian instructs and corrects the child, the guardian is not the father. Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 15 of our text, Though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When we are brought by God's grace into saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we gain what Paul refers to here as guides. In the church we have people around us to teach us God's word and to teach us to follow Christ. And we may have numerous guides in Christ. But Paul says he has been given a unique role in the Corinthians' lives, that of a spiritual father to them. He says that he became their father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Corinthian church came into existence as the Apostle Paul proclaimed the gospel in Corinth. And as individuals believed by the gracious working of the Holy Spirit through that message and were saved. In this way, the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians were brought into relationship with one another as a father is related to his children. Because Paul is their spiritual father, he has a special fatherly love for the Corinthian church. And because he is their spiritual father, he carries out fatherly responsibilities toward them. Now, it is vital that you understand that it is always and only through the gospel that a person is saved. Paul says in verse 15 that they became his children through the gospel. You need to understand that it is always and only through the gospel that a person is saved. The gospel is the good news. L literally, the word gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ's atoning death for sinners and His victorious resurrection on the third day. It is the good news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners. To save sinners from the penalty of sin. Which is the, that penalty is the eternal wrath of God. The eternal condemnation of God. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners. A sinner is saved by God through faith in the gospel. When the sinner turns from sin to Christ, believing the gospel, that sinner receives the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. When sinners are saved, it is always through the gospel. The only way of being saved is through the gospel. And this is why it is so important that you understand the gospel rightly. Now Paul says in our text, in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It is with, it is with fatherly love that Paul has spoken strong words of correction to his spiritual children. 
The Corinthians needed the fatherly admonishment that Paul had given. Just as we need to be admonished when we are in sin. It is not okay for those who have been saved through the gospel to continue in sin. Sin is offensive to God. God has saved us from our sin in order to make us holy and blameless. He has saved us from our sin in order to conform us to the image of Christ. He has saved us from our sins so that we might live a new life of worship and obedience to God. Sin is offensive to God. If we have been saved through the gospel, it is not okay to continue in sin. A father who does not correct his children when they disobey God does not love his children. Fatherly love requires admonishment. We read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Admonishment in the church is not something to avoid. It's not something to take offense at. Rather, admonishment in the church is something to be received with gratitude. When we are in sin, we need first admonishment. And second, we need a fatherly example to follow. A fatherly example to follow. We see that in verses 16 and 17. Look with me at verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now children naturally tend to follow the example set by their parents, whether good or bad. That is the way God has designed it. Children will imitate their parents. Paul is saying here, Since I am your father in Christ, I exhort you to follow my example. He does not just correct them. He does not just point out their sin and say, That is wrong. But as a faithful spiritual father, he sets for them an example of following Christ. And he urges them to follow that example. An example of spiritual maturity. Similarly, Paul will say in chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was not claiming to uh, be at some state of sinless perfection. Certainly, he he does not intend for the Corinthians to follow uh, any sinful things in his life. But as he is following Christ, he is setting an example of doing so. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Apostle Paul spoke in chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, in that passage that we studied last week of how he denies himself and sacrificially serves Christ. How he is willing to be seen as foolish and weak for Christ's sake. How he is willing to go without daily necessities for Christ's sake. How he is willing to be disparaged, persecuted, and rejected for Christ's sake. How he is even willing to die for Christ's sake. Remember that analogy? We're we're, we're like captives who uh, have been sentenced to death. They're on on their way to the arena where they'll be put to death. He was willing to die for Christ's sake. And now Paul urges the Corinthians to follow his example. Imitate me. I urge you to do so. Think of how important it is for parents to set an example for their children of living in the way that they instruct their children to live. Children need God's way of living modeled for them by their parents. You you may, as a parent, tell your children that they must treat other people with kindness, gentleness, and patience, caring for the interests of others and forgiving others, and you may explain very well what this means, but how helpful is that verbal instruction if your children do not see you live this out? If they don't see it modeled, if they don't see in you an example of living this out, how helpful is that verbal instruction? God gave us an example in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 13, verse 15, after he washed his disciples' feet, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. 
He didn't just say, serve one another. He gave them an example of service. He said, I've given you an example. Do as I have done for you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the Apostle Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in His steps. Christ, by God's design, has set an example for us as His followers. A Christian is a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. Christ has set an example for us to follow. And Christ gave the early church examples in the apostles. We see that in our text. Paul speaks of himself as an example to his spiritual children in the Lord. And it is God's design that we would have examples to follow in the local church. It's God's design that we would have examples to follow in our elders and our deacons. Which is why the majority of the qualifications in Scripture for elders and deacons are character qualifications. Not skills, not ability, though there is some there, but it's primarily character requirements. Because God's design is that elders and deacons would set an example for the congregation to follow, a Christ-like example, an example of following Jesus. It's God's design that we would have examples to follow in other mature believers in the local church. And this is one of the many reasons why it is necessary to be in fellowship with a healthy local church. Because we need examples. Examples of following Jesus. Examples of Christ-likeness. Examples of Christian maturity. We need examples before us to follow after. And so it's so necessary to be in fellowship with a healthy local church that, that you might be around such examples. Continuing in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look again at verse 16, 16 and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate him, but he isn't currently with them. And can't currently observe him. Now, he was with them before for 18 months or so. But he's not currently with them. They can't currently look at his example. So he sent Timothy to them. Timothy is one of the Apostle Paul's beloved and faithful children in the Lord. And he is also one of the Apostle Paul's fellow workers. We learn from Acts chapter 18, verse 5, that Timothy had ministered alongside Paul during part of Paul's time in Corinth. Timothy had already been there in the Corinthian church ministering. And now Paul, out of deep love for the Corinthians, has sent his beloved child in the faith, Timothy, back to the Corinthian church to remind them of the apostles' ways in Christ. Timothy so faithfully followed the Christ-like example set by the apostle Paul. That Timothy's teaching and behavior among the Corinthians would be a reminder of Paul's teaching and way of life in service of Christ. What Paul taught and the way that he lived were intimately bound together. Wherever the Apostle Paul went and whatever church he was in, he taught the same body of truth and he set the same example of living out the truth of Christ. What Paul is calling the Corinthians to is what the whole church is called to. Now let me ask you, do you recognize the need of setting examples in the church for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you see the need of setting examples in the church for others to follow? The Apostle Paul called the church to follow his example, and because he couldn't be there, he sent Timothy to be an example for the Corinthians to follow. Elders and deacons, understand that you have a high calling from Christ to set a Christ-like example for our congregation to follow. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example 
in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-3, through 3, the Apostle Peter said, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be re- revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. These are Scripture's instructions to every elder. We are instructed to be examples to the flock. Elders and deacons, this is why you need to be at the majority of the meetings of the church. When the church gathers together, they need to see you. You need to be there so that they can see your example. Others and deacons, this is why you need to show hospitality and have people into your home. Our congregation does not just need examples of living for Christ on Sunday morning in this building. Our congregation needs examples of following Christ in the middle of the week. Examples of following Christ at home. Others and deacons, show hospitality. Invite people in the congregation into your homes for fellowship. Brothers and sisters, after you lead someone to Christ, and that should be our prayer, every Christian should have the prayer that the Lord would enable us to lead others to Christ, to share the gospel with Christ, and that by God's grace, others that we share the gospel with would be saved. Brothers and sisters, after you have led someone to Christ, understand you have a responsibility from God to be an example to your spiritual child of faithfully following Christ. That's called discipleship. We're called to evangelize and to disciple. We share the gospel with unbelievers that they might, by God's grace, be saved. If they're saved, then we have a responsibility towards them. They are, in a sense, now our spiritual child. And we have spiritual parental responsibilities toward them. That includes setting for them an example of following Christ. In fact, every believer has a responsibility to grow as an example to others in the church of following the Lord Jesus. Let me ask, brothers and sisters, do you pay attention to the Christ-like examples that are set for you in our church? If you don't think that you need to pay attention to Christ-like examples in our church, then you are walking in pride. You're walking in the flesh if you think that you don't need examples around you of following Christ. We all need examples that we can see with our eyes, that we can hear with our ears, that we can interact with. This is a component of Christian fellowship. We see in the New Testament that fellowship is very important in the church. And a component of Christian fellowship is this setting of an example for one another and observing the examples around us. You need to gather with the church when the church gathers that you might be surrounded by Christ-like examples. And this is one of the reasons why watching our church's webcast is no substitute for gathering in person. When you watch the webcast, you do see the service, you do hear the message, but you don't interact with anybody. Other than those who are in the front, you don't see the examples of mature believers that you would see if you came in person. It's vital that we would come in person to to gather together as the church. That we would be surrounded by Christ-like examples to follow after. When you gather with the church, you, you do need to seek to get to know the brothers and sisters. You, know, you, you will not learn much from their example if you simply sit in the same room. If you just come at the time the service starts, and then you leave when the service is over, and you don't interact with brothers and sisters, then you are really, being de- you're, you're really missing out on something that Paul says is really important. That observing of the examples of your brothers and sisters as we interact, as we fellowship. If you are struggling in the Christian life, or if you're living in sin, 
Ask yourself how much time you are spending together with Christ-like brothers and sisters. If the answer is not very much, then recognize that to address the problems, one thing you will need to do is spend more time with the brethren. You need to be around godly examples. Christ's design is not that we would live the Christian life all by ourselves, but in fellowship with a body of believers who are growing in Christ. Well, so far we have seen that when we are in sin, we need, first of all, a fatherly admonishment to take to heart. We've seen, secondly, we need a fatherly example to follow. And as we continue in our text, we will see, lastly, that we need a fatherly warning. A fatherly warning to heed. Look with me in our text at verses 18 through 21. Verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? We see in verse 18 that some in the Corinthian church were arrogant. They were, as we compare this with Previous passages we've studied, we see that they were promoting worldly wisdom. They were living in a fleshly way. They were putting down the Apostle Paul as if he wouldn't return and put a stop to it. So Paul says they're arrogant. They're continuing in these sinful behaviors as if I were not going to come and put a stop to it. These were the ringleaders of the problems Paul has been addressing in the church. And they were influencing the whole congregation. Paul, at times in in his correction, he's been speaking to the congregation as a whole. He he speaks as if the whole congregation um, needs to be corrected. But here he says some. Some are arrogant. These are the ringleaders of the problems Paul has been addressing in the church. These individuals have been influencing the whole congregation. In verse 19, the Apostle Paul warns these ringleaders and the rest of the church that he plans to come and address these issues head-on, face-to-face, as a loving father must do. And when he does, he says, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. You see, these arrogant people were enamored with what Paul termed in chapter 1, verse 17, words of eloquent wisdom. Something that Paul specifically did not use. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we saw how the the people of Corinth were a people who were enamored with eloquent wisdom. These arrogant people that Paul addresses in our text, exalted lofty speech. Another term that the Apostle Paul used, that was in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to go back to chapter 2 to see what he says about lofty speech. Chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read through verse 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And now in our text, Paul says, I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. It appears that these arrogant ringleaders used the kind of speech that they exalted. It was with this kind of speech, these eloquent words of wisdom, this this lofty speech, that they were persuading the rest of the congregation. But when Paul comes, what he will examine will be the power of these arrogant people. There is no spiritual power in human eloquence. 
The eloquence of false teachers can turn people away from the truth as they hear what their itching ears want to hear, but there is no power in human eloquence to save and sanctify souls. Where is the power found? Back in chapter 1 verse 18, Paul told us where the power is found. He said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God. Power is found where the word of God, which centers on Christ and Him crucified, is faithfully proclaimed as the Spirit of God works through the word in hearts and lives. That's where power is found. Here in our text, in chapter 4, verse 19b, in verse 20, Paul says, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is the rule of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul is talking about the kingdom of God in its present form. This is a spiritual kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom is by the miracle of the new birth. A birth that is wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born by a work of the power of the Holy Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is by the power of God that a person is, as Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and, and, and 14 says, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. It is by the power of God that that occurs. Being delivered from the domain of darkness, being transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And when a sinner is thus brought into the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing about new birth, when a sinner is thus brought into the kingdom, brought under God's rule through Christ, the power of God begins to transform that person to be increasingly like Christ. As Jesus Christ told His disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot grow in Christ. You, you cannot live a life that is pleasing to Christ apart from from me, apart from the power of Christ flowing through you. And the power of Christ flows through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God exercises the saving and sanctifying power through His Word, which centers on Christ and Him crucified. People are not born again apart from the Gospel, apart from God's Word, and people are not sanctified apart from the Word. As Jesus prayed in John 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. God exercises His saving power, His sanctifying power through His Word, which centers on Christ and Him crucified. And so when Paul returns to Corinth, he says in verse 19b, I will find out. Not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Are they proclaiming the only message that has power to save and to sanctify? Is the Holy Spirit pleased to work through their message to take people who are dead in trespasses and sins and to make them alive together with Christ? To raise them up with Christ and seat them with Christ in the heavenly places? To make them new creations in Christ? Is the Holy Spirit pleased to work through their message to free guilty sinners from the penalty and power of sin and to make them servants of Christ? Is the Holy Spirit pleased to work through their message to sanctify believers? I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Apart from the working of such power through the word of Christ, a church will become just 
like the world. And when a church becomes like the world, what happens to it? It dies. When Paul comes and examines the arrogant individuals, he expects that unless they repent, he will find eloquent words and no power. And so he asks in verse 21, in verse 21, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The word rod speaks of discipline. You see that in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13.24 speaks about the rod. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Again, in Proverbs 22.15, we read, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And in chapter 23, verses 13 and 14, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. When Paul asks, Shall I come with a rod? He's asking, Shall I come with discipline? Hebrews 12.11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is called a rod because it's painful. It's not pleasant. But when used in love, and the Spirit of God is at work, it produces the fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Paul warns the Corinthians that as a loving father, he will exercise spiritual discipline among them if they do not repent. That he may rebuke them face to face, He may remove some of them from positions of authority. He may remove some of them from the church. Paul warns he will come with a rod if they do not repent. Now what does it mean to repent of sin? We use this word repent all the time because the gospel calls for a response of repenting of our sin and believing in Christ. And here in this text, we have the the, the concept, Paul is warning, if you do not repent, then I am going to come with a rod. What does it mean to repent of sin? The Westminster Confession of Faith put it very well. Listen carefully. This is very biblical. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. So it's by God's grace that one repents. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. By it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins, as to turn from them all unto God." purposing and endeavoring to walk with Him in all the ways of His commandments. Let's unpack that together. By repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of His sins. You see, with repentance, there's a godly sorrow over our sin. It's not simply sorrow because there's consequences that I now am facing for my sin, or that I will face for my sin in the future. But it says, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. That there must be a godly sorrow over our sins, where, where we recognize our sin for what it is. We recognize the filthiness of our sin. We recognize how offensive it is to our God, who is holy, holy, holy. Godly sorrow over sin is a God-centered sorrow over sin rather than a man-centered sorrow. So by it a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent so grieves for and hates his sins. You see, there's a change of heart in repentance. 
where we grieve over our sin. We go from accepting our sin and being okay with our sin to hating our sin because of the offense that it is to God. To such as our penitent so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with Him in all the ways of His commandments. So repentance is not simply feeling sorry for your sin and asking God to forgive you. And repentance is actual change of heart regarding your sin. And so you go from being okay with your sin or justifying your sin to hate it and purposing and endeavoring to walk now with God in all the ways of His commandments. There's a change of heart, so there's a change of direction in your heart. So now you are seeking by God's grace to obey God, to submit to Him, to walk a different path than that sinful path you walked. That's repentance. Repentance will have fruit that John the Baptist talked about. If the Corinthians repent, Paul says he will not come with a rod, but rather with love and a spirit of gentleness. Meaning that he will forgive them. Meaning that he will reflect the gentleness to them that Christ spoke of in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. When Jesus said, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Paul says, if you repent, I will come with, with love and a spirit of gentleness, the gentleness of Christ. The Apostle Paul is ready to come with a rod if need be, and he is just as ready to come with forgiveness and gentleness if there be repentance, and the latter is his desire. His desire is that they would repent before he gets there, that he might show gentleness rather than the rod, as is the desire of any loving father. Any loving father wants to see their children repent, wants to see their, their, their children to turn from their sin. Any loving father would, would rather forgive a repentant child than discipline an unrepentant child. Now if we are in sin, we need to hear the warning of discipline that our loving Heavenly Father gives. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7b through 10. Hebrews 12, 7b through 10. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. His discipline is real. He disciplines His children. So if we are in sin, we need to hear our Father's warning of discipline in the Scriptures. We need to understand that while our Heavenly Father sometimes disciplines us directly, often He intends to do so through others in the church as they follow the steps that Christ laid out in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15-20. through 20. Which starts with going to the person in private to show them their sin. And it goes from there. We as a church need to be willing to follow those steps that Jesus laid out for discipline. We need to be willing to follow those steps in love. Discipline when a believer is in sin is important. A church that does not discipline does not truly love one another. A loving father, as we have seen in our text, admonishes his wayward children. A loving father sets an example for his children to follow. And a loving father warns of discipline. This is what the Apostle Paul rightly did for his spiritual children in Corinth. And this is what is to happen in every local church. This passage does not mean that such admonishment, setting an example, and discipline is only the responsibility of spiritual fathers. Our Heavenly Father gives all the members of Christ's church responsibility in such matters. 
He carries out his fatherly will in a church through its members. At the same time, it does indicate that spiritual fathers are especially responsible to carry out these responsibilities. This passage teaches all of us in the body of Christ that it truly matters how we as believers live. Paul didn't hear of the sin in the Corinthian church and just continue on just hoping things were going to get better. He addressed the sin. He said, I'm sending you Timothy and I'm going to come. It truly matters how we as believers live. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, set free by the blood of Christ from the power of sin, that we might live a new life of obedience to Christ, of service to Christ as our new Master. And God will fulfill His purpose. He will conform us to the image of Christ. He will make us holy and blameless. It matters how we live. Now there are many further applications that we could make from this text. But I want to leave every believer in this room with one last application. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, are you able to urge people whom you disciple to imitate you? We all should be seeking to disciple believers who are newer than us in the faith, whether formally or informally. Brothers and sisters, are you able to urge people whom you disciple to imitate you? Again, this is not talking about arriving in a place of sinless perfection. First John chapter 1, if we say we were without, are without sin, we are a liar, and the truth is not in us. But this is setting an example of following Jesus. This is setting an example of maturing in Christ. Setting an example of repentance. Setting an example of faith. Are you able to urge people whom you disciple to imitate you? Now if you say, no way. I know the way I'm living. I could not, with a clear conscience, urge another person to imitate myself. If that's the case, what needs to change? Because something needs to change. That's not okay. It's not okay if you say, I'm not in a place where I can call upon a younger believer to follow my example. Something needs to change. So how is that change going to come about? How, how are you going to grow or start to grow in those areas where you've not been growing? It certainly is not going to come about by worldly methods. That was the Corinthians' approach to things. Worldly methods. You're not going to become an example for others to follow by worldly methods. Growing and setting an example for others will come about as your mind is renewed with the gospel and with the rest of the Word of God. The message of Christ and Him crucified and the significance of that and all that is connected to that in all the Scriptures. Growing and setting an example for others will come about as your mind is renewed with the Word of God and as you are in fellowship with Christ. Jesus is the true vine. We are the branches. If we don't abide in Him, we can't bear fruit. To bear fruit, we must abide in the vine. Abiding in the vine includes fellowship with Christ, communion with Christ. If all week long you're living for the things of this world, you're not fellowshipping with Christ, you're not communing with Him, your mind is just set on earthly things, and then when you come here on Sunday, you're trying to set your mind on heavenly things, and then you leave this room and you sit on earthly things again. But there's not going to be growth. There's not going to be maturity. Because you're not abiding in the vine. You have to abide in Christ, have fellowship with Christ, commune with Christ. That His power might work through us, producing fruit. 
We don't manufacture fruit. It's produced by Christ. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. As we fellowship with Christ and as we are in fellowship with Christ's body. We've seen this morning the importance of fellowship with Christ's body. If you're not in fellowship with Christ's body, how are you going to be able to, to grow in setting an example for others? And this growing and setting an example will only come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we think that we can do this in our own strength, we're going to fall. Pride goes before fall. If we're going to grow and setting an example, it's going to be in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Seeking the Lord. Seeking His grace. Seeking from Him, His work in us. That we would will and work according to God's good pleasure. Well, as I said, there are many applications that we can make from this passage uh, to our lives in various situations. And may the Spirit of God use what we have seen in our lives. That we would not just walk away from here this morning and go, well, that was good. Let me just continue on the way I was before. But may we, by the Spirit of God, having seen these things, may we keep in mind what we have seen. May we respond in prayer with the Lord to what we have seen. May we be changed by the Spirit of God because we see these things are important and changes are needed in my life. May the Lord use this for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Paul says some hard things under the inspiration of your Spirit. He admonishes as a father, as a loving father. And sometimes we need that admonishment. Lord, we pray that you would use what we have seen in our lives. Give us the grace, Father, to, to, to grow in setting an example for others. Lord, I pray that if some in this room are currently in sin, Lord, that you would admonish them through your word, or through a brother, or through a sister. We pray if there are some who are in sin, Lord, that you would work by your Spirit in their heart, that they might see their sin for what it is and confess it to you, have godly sorrow over it and repent of it. Lord, we pray that you would help us with setting that example of following Jesus. There's no one of us in this room that, that can say we are without sin. We, we all are aware of struggles we have with sin, how areas where we need to grow and mature. We pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to, to work on those things, to seek you regarding those things. Give us the grace to grow in Christ, to mature in Him, together as a local church, together as the body of Christ, for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.